Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. It's week five of our series, Outsiders. And we are finishing up Acts chapter 9 today. The last couple weeks, so the first part of Acts was mainly Peter and then John. And then we took a couple weeks off from that in Acts 9 to look at Saul, who we know also as Paul. His conversion story, how he went from basically a terrorist in his own right against the church of Jesus Christ into who he will become. He's in the process right now of becoming that, who he will soon become, really the greatest ambassador in the history of the Christian church and even changed the face of Western culture even to this day. So now as we finish Acts 9, we're back to Peter. Focus is back on him for the, really the rest of our series. Paul will creep back in or Saul one more time really quickly in a few weeks, but Peter's now the emphasis for the rest of the series through the next several weeks. And today's message is, is going to be pretty straightforward, I think. I try not to make it too convoluted. It's a simple idea, simple story that we're going to look at today. And the idea is that we're going to look at a problem and a solution. Simple idea, two parts, problem, solution. And we're going to... What we're going to do is we're going to have an opportunity to really close today in a very unique way to apply what we're talking about right now in the room before we leave. We're going to have an opportunity to do that in sort of a special way. Uh, But before we get to that part, let's talk about this problem solution. So we're going to read the last about 12 verses of Acts chapter 9. And we're going to look at two stories that go back to back with the Apostle Peter and see what the problem was and what his solution was and how we can apply the same solution to the same problem that we face today. So uh, if you have your Bibles or the Bible app um, or your smartphone or whatever, we're in Acts chapter 9 and we're going to start at verse 32, Acts 9, 32, and we're going to read through the end of Acts 9. So Acts 9, 32. Meanwhile, Peter traveled from place to place. He came down to visit the believers in the town of Lydda. There he met a man named Aeneas who had been paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your sleeping mat. And he was healed instantly. Then the whole population of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas walking around, and they turned to the Lord. There was a believer in Joppa, a neighboring town, named Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was always doing kind things for others and helping the poor. About this time, she became ill and died. Her body was washed for burial and laid in an upstairs room. But the believers had heard that Peter was nearby at Lydda, so they sent two men to beg him, "'Please come as soon as possible.'" So Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes Dorcas had made for them. But Peter asked them all to leave the room. Then he knelt and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Get up, Tabitha. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. Then he called in the widows and all the believers, and he presented her to them alive. The news spread through the whole town, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. 
We're looking simply at these two stories, problem, solution. Both stories have the same root problem, and they have the same root solution. And I think as we go through these two ideas, problem, solution, we're going to see the same problem persists today, but the same solution is available today, even like literally today, okay? So what is the problem? What's the problem that we read here in Acts 9? The problem generally is sickness. That's the problem. Aeneas has been paralyzed for eight years, bedridden for eight years. Now, we don't know if it's an accident that caused this, an injury that caused this, if it was a condition or a virus that, you know, had something to do with his spine or his legs. We don't know. We just know that for eight years he's been paralyzed, unable to walk and function as he normally had before in his life. Tabitha, it says, was ill, she was sick, and it led to death, which sickness sometimes does. So these two situations are expressed differently, but it's the same root problem. Sickness, illness, pain, suffering. So let me just clear up for just a second a possible misunderstanding maybe when it comes to especially Christians and sickness. Maybe you've heard these things before. Let me just clear up this misconception and just show how ridiculous it is. And that is the, the idea that Christians can't or should not get sick. Or maybe you've heard that. There are some uber charismatics out there that would say, if you had had enough faith, you wouldn't have gotten sick. And I'm like, bring your face closer so I can slap you really hard. That's like... Why, would you why do you think that's nowhere in the Bible? And we'll look at that here in a second. Uh, so there are some people that believe that, and I think they genuinely believe that. They could maybe express it, like, well, maybe not at all, uh, or in, differently. Uh, but still, some on that front do that too. Uh, but also remember, uh, when I was in Bible college, I wrote a research paper on the Christian Science Church. They have an interesting um, sort of relationship with medicine as well. They were kind of anti-vaxxers before it was cool. Um, and and they, so they don't necessarily swat down all Western medicine. There's not like a uniform sort of belief, but they really frown upon that. And it's not in the same way as like the uber charismatics. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't get sick. But they have sort of this strange levels of consciousness sort of belief in their religion. It's funny. They're called Christian scientists. They're neither Christians nor scientists. Um, so it's weird that they call themselves that. Uh, but anyway, uh, so they, they have a strange relationship with doctors and medicine. And it's kind of weird. But like let me read to you from the founder of this religion. It's not Christian. It's a, it's a I guess you call it a cult or a different religion. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, she wrote a book in 1875 called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. Here, here's how she describes their belief on sickness for who they would call Christians. All reality is in God and his creation harmonious and eternal. That which he creates is good. I agree with that. And he makes all that is made. So far, we're okay here. Therefore, the only reality of sin, sickness, or death is the awful fact that unrealities seem real to human erring belief until God strips off their disguise. You see what she says there? The first part I can jive with. God made everything good and perfect, and he made it all. Yes. We get to the therefore, I'm like, I'm out on that. Basically, her belief, and then the belief of the Christian Science Church, is that sickness is sort of a lower level of consciousness thinking. If you can elevate yourself to a higher spiritual level or a higher level of spiritual consciousness or awareness, you can avoid sickness. Um, you can be free from the reality that everyone else seems to struggle with. Well, if we reach this level, it's similar to even Scientology in a way they're not related, even though science is in both of them, they're different. Uh, both wackadoodle, to be honest with you. No offense, but offense, you should take it. Um, 
I'm on fire today. All right, so here's the deal. Whether or not someone believes that belief of Christian scientism or this uber-charismatic, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't get sick, both are equally wrong. You've lived long enough to know, even as a Christian, Christians get sick. We deal with sickness, illness, disease, and even as Tabitha shows us, death. It happens. So let's look at for a few minutes, though, why that is. If we all get sick, even Christians, well, why? What's, how can we point that even biblically, theologically, to the purpose, not even the purpose, but the, the reason behind uh, sickness? There's three main categories I want to cover for just a couple minutes, and I'm going to use a little bit um, of leeway here. I'm going to do, in my view, is the least likely to the most likely. Now, you can disagree and say, well, I think your order's a little bit off. We're just covering the three main categories, and I'm going to go, in, in my view, what I see as least likely to most likely uh, reasons for sickness. So let's look at this one. The first one, I think is least likely, but it still can be a reason, is God's judgment. Now, the reason I put this on here is because it's all over the scriptures, Old Testament and even New Testament. It's not just angry guy with a lightning bolt before Jesus and then it's all patty cake. It's like, no, 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 it's everywhere. So let's look at a few examples. These are the ones I'm going to run through quickly. So hopefully you're writing uh, fast or you've got the Bible app downloaded. It's these, all these references are in there. So Numbers 11, the people in the wilderness, God's people are grumbling about manna. God's given them this food, supernatural food falling from the sky every night to give them enough to eat in the middle of the desert. But they get tired of that after a while, and so they start to complain, oh, we want meat, we want variety in our diet, we should go back to Egypt, you know, at least we had food that was yummy. And so God says, you want meat, I'll give you meat. And so he brings these quail down, they fly about three feet off the ground so they can capture them and eat the meat. But when they eat the meat, uh, a plague goes throughout the land after they eat this quail. And so I don't know if it's like bird flu. I don't know if it's food poisoning. We don't know what it is, but that was God's judgment clearly on the people in Numbers 11. Later on in Numbers 21, the people are grumbling against Moses. It's interesting so far, the, the thing between like grumble and judgment. It's, it's weird, but we see it here again in Numbers 21. The people grumble against Moses, and so God sends these venomous snakes into the camp. God sends them. It, it, it says in, in the text, he sent them, and they're biting the people, and there's another plague breaking out uh, with these snakes. And so Moses says, hey, God, this isn't cool. Like People are getting sick and dying, and this isn't a good look, and so we need to do something about that. And so God says, okay, uh, fashion a bronze serpent, a, a serpent out of bronze, and put it on top of this post, and if people look up at the snake, they will be healed of this sickness that's going through the camp. It's really a, a forerunner to Jesus. We look up at the cross and find our healing, which we'll get to. Spoiler alert, that's the second half we'll get to in a minute, as you already know. Um, so that, but God sent that, the plague of snakes. First Chronicles 21 is another interesting story where King David takes a census of the people, and God's very displeased with him. You think, well, why doesn't he need to know how many noses? And how? But basically, as you read, the prophet there says, hey, this is not a good idea because really what it comes down to is David's trying to see how big of an army he has. How many men do I have in case there's an attack? And God's like, you don't need an army. You've got me, so stop it. So God's not happy, and so Basically, what happens because of David's sin is a plague kills 70,000 Israelites. King David's sin equals 70,000 dead people. Not a great, his, his approval rating is going to go way down after that. Hope he's not running for re-election anytime soon, okay? So but it says that God did this, and so he makes a sacrifice to God to 
get the plague out of the nation. That's Old Testament, so you'd say, well, that makes sense because God's angry and God's frustrated and he's throwing lightning bolts and killing people. We've already looked at an example in the book of Acts of God's judgment harming or killing someone. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell this piece of land and they lie about how much it was worth, about how much they gave. It really, as we looked at several weeks ago, to all about them, look how much we gave, look how generous we are. And so the progression that we looked at, I think it was the end of June, was pride, lied, died, right? They give this to look good, they lie about how much it was, and then they are struck dead instantly, uh, the Holy Spirit, because they lied to the Holy Spirit. So it happens in the New Testament. In Acts 12, which we'll get to in a few weeks, we'll get there before the end of the year, uh, there's the king of the Jews at the time named Herod Agrippa. And he basically just gives, gives a speech one day, and the people are so enamored with this speech, they say, he speaks like a god, he must be a god, they worship him as a deity. And he accepts their worship. So the scripture says, we'll get to it, but just, you know, give you something to look forward to in a few weeks. Um, it says that God, basically he was, that Herod Agrippa was eaten alive with worms, and died. Now that's gross. I don't want to watch that on The Chosen. If they ever do like the, you know, the Acts version of The Chosen, I can skip that episode. I don't want to watch that. So anyway, so this happens in the New Testament. Here's another one that's interesting. This is 1 Corinthians 11, a passage that we read almost every month when we do communion together. In the middle of that, because so we, we do communion in our setting sort of in the middle of our church gathering. We take a few minutes and set aside to remember what Christ did for us with his body and blood. And we know it's a sacred moment. We take time out to realize the sacredness of that moment. Well, in the Corinthian church context, they're doing it in the context of a larger gathering, a larger meal together. And it's part of that process for them. And so what Paul is correcting them here is he's saying, hey, I know some of you are coming, you're really hungry and you're eating and then you're doing communion as like the dessert part, you know, or the hors d'oeuvre maybe even before the meal and you're not seeing this as a sacred moment you're not waiting to come together to take time out to pause and reflect on what this actually is and paul even tells them because you're taking this in an unworthy manner this is why some of you have become sick and why some of you have died so paul here even says now please take communion the next time we take it okay in a few weeks don't don't freak out but the the principle still applies it's a sacred type of thing and paul says that the reason that some of you are sick and dying is because you're taking this without thinking about the sacredness of what it represents. It's just like another thing you're going through. It's part of the meal, not a big deal. We're not waiting to get together. Oh, they'll do it when they get here. Paul's like, no. So we see it old and New Testament. And so it's, it's the least common, I would say, because how do you know if your sickness is a judgment from God? Unless he like literally, physically, audibly tells you, I'm judging you, you know, like we just don't know. So I would be careful. Now, again, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm not saying it's the most likely reason for sickness, uh, suffering in, in the world, okay? The second reason I think is more likely is sickness can be an attack from Satan. So it could be God's judgment, but I think more likely than that, many times it is Satan's attack. We see this also in Scripture in Job chapters 1 and 2. Job is a righteous man. So he's like these people in Acts. He's a believer as far as believers were concerned back in those ancient times, a faithful man of, of God, it seems, blameless even as he's described, but yet we, re we read at the beginning as the reader what Job never knows, and that is Satan is allowed to inflict pain and suffering and sickness upon his physical body. 
He goes basically to get permission from God. It's, it's strange how this sort of works out, uh, but he, he does that. Job never knows this. Only we as the reader know this. And that sort of becomes the discussion between Job and his friends throughout the rest of the book of Job, is why do people suffer? Why is there sickness? And they have their reasons, and they have their, you know, here's why, and this is why, and that's why, and God this, and you that, right? And, but really, the, the lesson that Job needs to learn, and maybe, hopefully he does, is not why is there suffering, but what do I do with my suffering? So they never really get to an answer of why. Even God at the end says, I don't have to tell you why. I don't owe you an explanation. I don't owe you a reason. And I'm not going to tell you why. Now, it would have been so much easier if you would have said, well, yeah, Satan said it was, kind of a, it was kind of a challenge, and you were kind of caught in the middle. And Satan said, yeah, if, I, if you let me crush him, he'll, you know, say, I hate God. And I'm like, no, he won't. And so you, know, you just kind of got caught in the middle of that sort of thing. And, uh, but he didn't do that. So he, he leaves the story not knowing why, but that wasn't the point. It was, what do I do in spite of that? But we know that Satan can attack people with sickness. Peter, we'll look at Acts 10 starting next week for a few weeks, but Peter says this when he's talking to a group of Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ about Jesus. Peter says in Acts 10, 38, you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus himself even affirms the possibility that Satan can bring about sickness as an attack. Um, in, in Luke 13, he heals a woman with a very severe back problem or possibly a spinal problem. She just can't stand up straight. She's hunched over and can't function. He heals her, of course, on the Sabbath day, which Jesus loves to do that. And it creates this commotion with the religious leaders in the room. And when he explains, hey, I can kind of do what I want when I want, here's what he says. Look at this, Luke 13, verse 16. Jesus says, this dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? So Jesus affirms the possibility that some sickness can come from Satan's attack. We know that Satan is a created being. We know that. But he's also supernatural in a sense that he is not human. We know that Satan is not all-powerful, but we know that he has some measure of power to do some things that we cannot do. And, so, and we know also, um, John, Jesus says in John 10, verse 10, the enemy's goal is to steal, kill, destroy. Part of that strategy, Satan will do anything to try to defeat you, even as a Christian. And so if, he, if it's going to be this sickness that pulls you away from your faith, he's going to use that. If it's a diagnosis that's going to scare you away from faith, he's going to use that. If it's a chronic illness that you can't get over and it just defeats you, he's going to use anything that he can, even physical illness, sickness, pain, suffering, to pull you away from what God has for you in that relationship with him. So why sickness, God's judgment, possible, Satan's attack, possible, maybe more likely, but here's what I believe is the most common reason for sickness. And it's simply sin's effect. Sickness is an effect of sin. When sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, it fractured the world. All of it. Every part of it. The human body, very much so, included. Sickness, pain, and death followed sin hot on its heels into creation. So even in Genesis 3, when God, after the Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, God commanded them not to. He curses basically everything, right? And here's part of that. Genesis 3, 17. God said to the man, since you listened to your wife, let, I'm just going to let that breathe for a second, okay? 
Since you, okay, I'll move on, I'll move on, I'll move on. Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat uh, until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Right off the bat, God says, hey, pain, suffering, sickness, illness is a consequence of mankind's rebellion against God's perfect plan and obedience to him. Paul points this out too in Romans 5, verse 12. He says it very succinctly. He says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. So again, you, you cannot believe sickness is not for everyone if you actually read the Bible. It's right there. It's, it's no one's immune to sickness that comes from sin. Now, let me just make a distinction. It's not necessarily that your sickness is because of your sin. Remember the D David story? His sin affected a lot of other people. And that's part of the messiness of sin, is the consequences of it. Sometimes it's, so it's not just like a one-for-one. One. It's like the idea of sin entering the universe affects everything. And it, it just, that's just how it is. It broke everything. And Paul, one more scripture from Paul, and then we'll move on to the solution to the problem. In Romans 8, uh, Paul shows us this again, that sin broke everything when it entered the world. Romans 8, start at verse 18. Paul writes, what, yet what we suffer now, suffering, okay, it's part of the human condition, is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation, there it is again, has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Anybody else ready for that? <laughs> A new body that he's promised us, yes. What is Paul saying? Why do we get sick? Why do we experience pain? Why do our bodies break down? Why do they eventually give out and die? Sin. The entrance of sin into the world is a huge cause, I, I would say a major cause for sickness. Again, there's a cosmic effect to it. The entrance of sin does have an effect on all of us in some way. It affects us differently. We saw Aeneas paralyzed. We saw Tabitha, some illness that led to death. It seems prematurely, pretty quickly, unexpectedly. So it affects everyone differently, but it's the same root problem. Now, there are some natural effects. You know, sometimes my own sin and stupidity and selfishness will make me sick right? You think about illegal drug use is going to have some negative effects on whoever does that, right? You think about promiscuous sexual activity can cause some problems for the people involved in that, right? And so there is a cosmic effect, but there are some natural consequential effects to that. And really that comes down to, again, Romans 1. I'm not going to read it, but Romans 1. It's this idea where P Paul, it's not Peter, it is Paul, um, he says, you know, people want to do what they want to do. They want to sin. They want to rebel. They want to worship creation instead of the creator. And so at the end of Romans 1, Paul says, so God gave them over to their sinful ways. 
So in some ways, it's sort of a combination of number one and number three in a lot of ways. Sin does its own thing, but God will let you destroy yourself if that's what you want. I mean, C.S. Lewis, paraphrasing, but basically, uh, he said, hell is God giving you what you want. Now, that's not how we think of it, but that's a great way to think of it. Hell is giving you what you, what you really say you want. I want freedom from God. Well, you can have it forever then, right? Uh, you, I want my own way. Well, that's going to lead you down this path that you may not think you want, but that's what the result is. And really like Job, the reason why there is suffering is not the main point. But we all know that we deal with this problem, and we saw it here in Acts 9, the problem of sickness, suffering, pain, even death. So th- then what is the solution? If we define the problem, what, what is the solution? Is there a solution? I mean, modern medicine is great, but it's limited, isn't it? I mean, there are things that doctors and specialists just don't know yet. There are things that scientists have not discovered that we may never discover, cures that we may never have, right? We're limited in our scope, in our knowledge, in our ability to handle the problem of sickness and disease, illness, and even death. There's also this idea, I've been reading this uh, book lately, it's called God, Human, Animal, Machine, and it's part of what I, at the be- near the beginning, talks about this idea of transhumanism, I don't know if you've heard of that idea or not. Uh, transhumanism is sort of this idea that we can take our advances in technology and our advances in physiology and merge them together. Like everyone's going to be RoboCop or Terminator, you know, basically in the end, it's kind of what we're looking at here. It's combining not just like advances in medicine, but advances in technology and like computer technology to basically fuse people and machines together. That seems to be where secular humanists think we can defeat death once and for all. We can defeat sickness. So she describes it, the author describes it in this way in this book, uh, just to give you an idea of what is a possible solution for the problem. She writes, with the help of these techniques or technologies, excuse me, we will be able to transfer or resurrect our minds onto supercomputers allowing us to become immortal. Our bodies will become incorruptible, immune to disease and decay, and each person will be able to choose a new customizable virtual physique. We will resurrect the dead as digital avatars. That's the idea of transhumanism. Now, I have two quick responses to that. One, that seems like a really sad existence. I'm half machine, I'm mostly machine, like am I, I, transhumanism, is there any human left once we transition into the machine part? Seems like a really sad way to exist. And the second part of that is more obvious, and it's like, you ever heard of a computer virus? (laughs) Whoops. Didn't think that one through, did you, transhumanists, you know? You ever hear of computer hackers, you know? Um, I don't want somebody hacking into my positronic brain. I don't, I don't need that. I just want to die and be done. I'd rather suffer and die than be spammed, you know, in my brain by some Russian hacker, okay? I don't, I don't need that in my, in my existence, all right? So that just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Clearly, transhumanism is a neat idea, I guess, if you like sci-fi movies, but as a reality, not a good solution to this problem. The solution is actually what we see in Acts 9. It's simply healing. It's simple. I know I told you it was very simple, very straightforward. Problem, sickness, solution, healing. I want to look at this solution from really three different angles for just a few minutes here uh, for the second part here and look at um, the method of healing that we see in Acts 9, the mode of healing we see in Acts 9, and then the megaphone of healing we see in Acts 9. So let's look at the method that Peter uses in Acts chapter 9 first. Peter's method is following Jesus' example. Simple as that. 
Both of these accounts in Acts 9, the paralyzed man who's healed Aeneas, and then Tabitha who's resurrected from the dead, there are very, very strong parallels to the ministry of Jesus, one in Mark chapter 2, one in Mark chapter 5. I want to walk through them here for a few minutes to look at the method that Peter uses, what he learned from Jesus, straight up. So Aeneas, right, it's very simple. He sees Aeneas and his condition, and he just says, Jesus Christ heals you, pick up your mat. And he does. That's it. That's all that the story is. And it's the same thing in Mark chapter 2 when, he, when Jesus has an interaction with a paralyzed man. We'll look at more of the details in a minute. But he says the same thing. Mark 2 verse 11. Jesus says simply, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Simple, direct, and effective. Peter saw this. He was here in Mark 2. He saw the, the method, and he follows the method and gets the same exact results as Jesus here. The same thing with Tabitha, the woman who is ill and then dies. Lots of parallels here. So in Mark 5, there's a father who comes about his daughter who is sick and very concerned about her. And it's the same thing here with Peter. So in Acts 9, Tabitha has been sick for some time. And this girl at first was very ill. In Acts 9, Tabitha's sickness eventually leads to death. While Jesus is on his way to heal this girl in Mark 5, she dies. We'll talk about why he was delayed here in just a second. In both of these instances, both in Acts 9 and Mark 5, people came to get Peter for this other person. In Mark 5, this girl's father comes to Jesus to get help from Jesus. They're both approached. Let's look at this in Mark 5, 22 through 24 and see what happens here. It says, then a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her, heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him and all the people followed crowding around him. And then you remember, so Jesus is on his way to heal the girl. Peter's on his way to heal. This woman's already dead. Tabitha's already dead. But when Peter gets to the house where Tabitha is in in Acts 9, there are all these women who are crying and mourning in the room with this dead body that's been washed and prepared for burial. And Peter says, okay, okay, okay. I got to clear the room. I got to have time to think and pray. I don't need this negativity. I don't need this lack of faith around me. He clears the room. Jesus does the exact same thing in Mark chapter 5. By the time he gets to the girl who is dying, she is now dead. So here's the scene, very similar to Acts 9 and Mark 5 with Jesus. When they came to the home of a synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples, one of whom is... Peter, into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Same method that Jesus used in Mark 5 that Peter is witnessing, he then uses in Acts 9, and the same result happens. Not a big show, not a bunch of to-do, simply in this quiet room, he prays and believes for a miracle and tells the dead person to get up, and in both cases, they get up. And we also look, so we saw the language Jesus speaks in, Talitha Kum. Remember this woman's name in Acts 9? Tabitha. Watch this. Look at that. One letter off. That's how parallel these stories are. It's a little thing that is just so interesting to me. I don't want to make too much of that. I also don't just want to look, overlook that. Okay? Uh, 
this is how parallel these accounts are. That Talitha, little girl, cum, get up, is the same as what Peter had said, Tabitha, cum. That's her name. Just that one letter. Just an interesting parallel I wanted to point out um, to see if you were as excited about that as I was when I, when I read that. Um, we'll see. So Peter was present here in Mark 5, and he used the same method that Jesus had used. But then let's like look at the mode of the healing here in, in Acts chapter 9. The mode might seem different. Well, there's different scenarios and different people involved. They're not exactly the same, you know. Now, the parallels from Peter to Jesus are very similar, but the two stories that, of Peter in Acts 9 are, are different. They're unique. They have different parts of them. So it seems to vary in the mode of healing. There, there's really three modes in these two accounts that I think we see. Sometimes the mode can seem to be the faith of the sick person brings about healing. So this is actually a story that we haven't looked at yet. It happens between the time that this girl is sick and the time she dies. The reason that Jesus is delayed in getting to her is because while he's walking there in a crowd, he feels something and he stops and he says, who touched me? And again, that's a weird question to ask. The disciples say, you're pressed. People are pressing in. How are you? What do you mean? But he, he felt something. He sensed something. And so he just stops. And then finally, this woman comes out and tells Jesus her story. She said, I've had this bleeding disorder for over a decade, and I've not been able to get over it. Doctors can't help me. And I knew that you were coming by. And I said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I can be healed. So Jesus tells this woman, your faith has healed you. Now, obviously, the power of Jesus did it, but he, he says, your faith in me has brought about healing. So sometimes it seems like, well, that's the mode. My, my faith, if I'm praying, can bring about healing. Maybe. Then there's also times where the faith of someone else seems to bring about the healing, right? In, both, in all the situations that we've looked at, both with Peter, both with Jesus, or in the, the um, resurrection stories, peop, other people come to them for help. Their faith is the one that brings about the healing, right? It's not even the person who is sick or ill or dead because they can't have any faith, obviously. So it's other people. And then the story with the paralyzed man in Mark 2, right? it's the story where the friends bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They're like, he, Jesus is in town. We need to get him to Jesus. So you know what they do? They take him on his mat. They climb up to the top of the house. They tear off part of the roof, you know, sorry guys, you know, and they lower him down to Jesus. And we'll look at the verse in a second, but Jesus looks at the faith of the man's friends, and from that the healing comes. So sometimes you'd say, well, is it, is it the person who needs healing in their faith? Is it the person coming on behalf of someone else? Maybe. And sometimes it looks like here, it's just the faith of the person doing the praying, both resurrection stories, we see this. It's just Jesus saying, get up. It's Peter saying, get up. Obviously, these dead people don't have any faith because they're dead. And they're the only ones really in the room. And so it seems like, okay, there's so many different kinds of modes here. Well, the details might differ, but the mode is the same in every single case. In every case here, in every case ever in the history of healing, it's simply faith in the power of Jesus that heals. That's the same baseline mode to healing, faith in the power of Jesus. And it's the same even today. Healing is available because Jesus has the same power he's always had. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's available for anyone. Um, and I'm not saying you, again, don't misunderstand. If you have enough faith or if you had enough faith, that's not. I'm just saying the mode, I can't explain it all. I don't know all the, all the details and nooks and crannies of it. I just know what I read and what I see over and over and over again. It's simply faith in Jesus to heal. That's the mode. Let's look finally then at, at the megaphone as we begin to wrap it up. The megaphone of healing here is the part, final part of a solution. In all these accounts, um, healing is the solution to sickness, 
But really, more importantly than being the solution, it's a sign. Healing comes from faith in the power of Jesus. We've established that. So then healing points to Jesus. You look at both accounts in Acts 9. After Aeneas was healed, Acts 9.35, it says they turned to the Lord. When Tabitha is raised from the dead, verse 42, many believed in the Lord. The same exact thing. And it's the same thing that we see here, this megaphone pointing people to Jesus as the point of healing. Um, the megaphone of healing we see back in Mark 2, the man who's paralyzed, his friends lower him down. Let's look at this as we close. Mark 2, verse 5. Seeing their faith, the friends of the paralyzed man, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. And you might be like, wait, 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 wait. That's not why he was lowered to Jesus. That's not, no, 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 he's paralyzed. That's the problem. What do we care about his sins for? But that's where Jesus begins. And so, of course, the religious leaders are always lurking, always looking. They're not happy with his choice of words. Your sins are forgiven, right? And so here's what they say, Mark 2, verse 6, the next verse. Some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, now think about this question. Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Let me ask you, which question in that situation is easier to ask? It's easier to tell someone your sins are forgiven because there's no proof needed anything actually happened. But if you tell a paralyzed man, get up and walk, he better get up and walk. Or Jesus has got some explaining to do, Lucy, okay? So it's easier for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven. But he goes on to say this, So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. The same results we see here are the same results in both stories in Acts 9. Amaze and praise is, is the result. The physical healing was simply a megaphone to get people's attention to Jesus. The healing's amazing, but it's it got their attention to get them to Jesus. They put their faith in the Lord. They were amazed. They were astounded. And so in these cases or in any case, the healing is not the most important part. It simply points to the most important person. That's the power of healing. It's all from Jesus. It's because of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now, I will say, though, physical healing is available, and it's amazing. But the purpose is not just the healing in itself. It's a megaphone to announce to anyone and everyone who will hear, the power of Jesus healed me. He can heal you. And guess what? More important than that, he saved me, and he can save you. That's the point of healing. Even in 1 Peter 2, when Peter writes one of his letters later, he quotes Isaiah 53, he says, By his stripes you are being healed. So it's not just a past tense thing, it's a present thing. It's like it's happening. Jesus heals you. And he's quoting, again, Isaiah 53, which points to not just physical healing, but spiritual healing as well, which is the most important thing. The soul sickness of sin is the real healing that Jesus is really concerned about. And he does these physical healings as a sign, as a megaphone, that he can do both. Jesus is still in the saving business today. 
He's still in the healing business today. Healing is available. The same power from the same person. In the words of Peter here in Acts 9, Jesus Christ heals you.